Well, I'm thankful for the worship team and the recorded music that they were able to give to us. I hope that you had a chance to watch that before uh, we get into the sermon text here today. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. I was just thinking, although these things are such a blessing uh, to be able to hear the worship team and the recorded music, I, I hope this sermon is uh, a blessing to you as well. It's still nothing like the gathered assembly of believers, uh, and so it's my hope that uh, inside of you there's uh, growing a dissatisfaction and a longing that really wants to soon come together again on the Lord's Day and to be able to celebrate together. Uh, I look forward for when that's going to happen. And I trust that it will be soon. In the meanwhile, it's my prayer that God will sustain us and give us grace through the Spirit and through our encouraging of each other in the body uh, one at a time. I would encourage you to keep in contact with other believers in the church here and to, to do that so that you might encourage them and be pushed along in your own walk with the Lord. Well, as we come to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, we've been making our way through the fourth doctrinal section in the book of Hebrews. Uh, this one is a long discourse, a lengthy discourse, about priest covenants and sacrifices. Last week, if you remember, and if you had the opportunity to hear the sermon, uh, we looked for a long time about the Old and New Covenants. And uh, we focused especially upon the New Covenant and the blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. I hope that uh, your heart was warmed by those blessings as we consider that he is our God, that we are his children, and that our sins are covered because of the Father. This week, as we uh, look at the scriptures, uh, we're going to be looking at the section about the sacrifices. Now, chapter 9 might feel a little foreign to us as we read through it. Um, in this section, we'll read about heifers and ashes and lampstands and incense altars and washing. We're going to learn about blood daubing or sprinkling in the tabernacle as well. This might also seem a bit barbaric to our contemporary ears. For instance, one of the things we'll see in this text is that the only way the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies was if his hands were covered in blood. And if he was able to sprinkle that blood on all of the furniture uh, in the tabernacle. As a matter of fact, I think if I were to try some of these uh, ancient practices of blood sprinkling and daubing uh, in our contemporary setting, if I were to do that at our church here, I, I think it would draw a lot of attention uh, from outsiders and animal rights uh, activists probably. Yet, uh, in these ancient practices and methods, I, I think that there is a message for us. And so, uh, our effort today will be to grasp what the author's point was for his original readers and to make application to our own lives. Now, I want to begin by showing you something that's not obvious in most English translations. But this section is a large contrast between the sacrifices of Moses and the Mosaic Covenant, and the sacrifices of Jesus. And there is a, there is a marker in your text that, to help you see that. If you look in uh, your Bible at the beginning of verse 1, you'll see the first marker. In my ESV Bible, it's translated with the word now. Now I'd prefer for that translation to be something like this, that word to be translated this way, on the one hand. Then if you flip the page or you go across the page in your Bible and you look at verse 11, 
Uh, that word starts, that verse starts with the word but, and I, it could be translated with but, but I would prefer for it to be translated on the other hand. And so you've got this contrast where the author of Hebrews says, on the one hand, I want you to consider Moses' sacrifices and the sacrifices of the tabernacle, but on the other hand, we're going to look at the sacrifice of Jesus. And so Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 10 are about the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. And then from 9-11, the whole way down through chapter 10, into chapter 10 and verse 10, are, is the author's comment about the sacrifice of the new covenant. This morning, we're only going to look at the first 14 verses. And so we start in verses 1 through 10 with the sacrifices of the old covenant. More specifically, as we come here, we consider two parts of the old covenant. If you look in your Bible at verse 1, you can see these parts. Verse 1 is kind of like a header uh, for this section. Look at verse 1. Now even the first covenant had, number 1, regulations for worship, and number 2, an earthly place of holiness. It's my opinion that those two subjects, regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, then become the subjects or topics that we will look at in verses 2 through 5 and 6 through 10. Verses 2 through 5 are about an earthly place of holiness. And verses uh, 6 through 10 are about the regulations for worship in the tabernacle. So let's begin with the earthly place in verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things now we cannot speak in detail. The earthly place of holiness here is clearly the tabernacle. Verses 2 through 5, the author takes us on a quick tour of the tabernacle. He goes from one section to another, and I think that there are at least three things that should stick out to you in this quick tour of the tabernacle. First, his description starts from the outside, and it works its way in. One commentator really helps capture, I think, what's going on here. His name is Thomas Schreiner. And he said, from the holy place, the author moves inward inside the veil to the most holy place. So it goes from outside to in, and even this progression, I think, is strategic from the perspective of the author of Hebrews, and it will be important later. But then secondly, what, I, what we need to notice about this description of the tabernacle is it describes two places, the holy place and the holy of holies. Verse 2 is about the holy place. The word here that's used is hagiah, and verses 3 through 5 are about the most holy place, which could be translated Hagia Hagion, or is found Hagia Hagion in the original. The word holy means set apart or to be distinguished and speaks of objects, places, and beings that are set apart from sin and devoted to the worship of God. And one of the interesting things you may have already picked up a little bit when I pronounced those two Greek words, uh, you may have seen that uh, that these things are dependent in some way upon the Old Testament scripture. Uh, in Hebrew, it's interesting, 
uh, the language of the Old Testament, uh, in that language, you do not have superlatives in comparisons. It's like in modern English today, you don't have anything that you can say like good, better, and best. You just can't do that in Hebrew. Instead, what the Old Testament authors would, would, would do, uh, in order to emphasize something's uh, uh, character, they would add uh, or repeat words to emphasize them. So the tabernacle in this text is the, the holy place, the tabernacle in its first court. The inner sanctum near the back where the high priest could only go in once a year was the holy, holy place, or in many of your older translations, the holy of holies. By the way, I was reading, I uh, did a word study on the word holy uh, in the Old Testament, uh, and especially the Septuagint, I noticed that there's a place where you find the word holy used three times, and it's in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, when the seraphim are flying around God, the presence of God, and Isaiah says that those seraphim say, hagios, 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 or hagios, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Their God himself is thrice holy. He's the holy, holy, holy God. And here in this text, we learn about a holy, holy place, uh, the inner sanctum and the holy place of the tabernacle. But then finally, I want you to notice that his description ends in the holy of holies at the mercy seat. Now, the words mercy seat, I don't think are very transparent for us today. I don't know that uh, many of you probably have a good grasp on what the mercy seat is, and so... I, I especially don't think that your grasp might, might be as good as maybe the original hearers of this would have been. And so I just want to take a little bit of time to help you understand what the mercy seat is. When we think of the mercy seat of the tabernacle, there are a few things we should keep in mind. First, we should consider its appearance. The mercy seat is the lid of a golden box, or the lid on a golden box, called the Ark of the Covenant. Moses created this box in the old, old Covenant under the leadership of God, and the Israelites used it as a guide and protection in the wilderness. They could not touch the box, if you remember this, and they must take it by poles if they were to go on some official act or journey. Now, the ark represents God's presence and blessing in the Old Testament. And that's why I think the two cherubim are symbolized here, as overshadowing the ark. One commentator helps us again here. He said, the glorious cherubim were above the mercy seat, guarding the presence of God, a task which belonged to the cherubim in the Garden of Eden as well. In other words, these angelic beings were around God. They were guardians in his presence. So that's the importance of the ark of the covenant and the cherubim. But, but notice also its significance. When we think of the mercy seat, there's another image that we should consider. The mercy seat itself was symbolic as a place of expiation or propitiation for sin. In other words, it is a place where atonement would occur. Uh, one translation I, I saw called the mercy seat the atonement cover. The cover of the ark where the place of atonement would occur. Now, we know that this is a place of expiation or propitiation, not only from its name, when you think about it. It's the seat from which mercy flows. But also from the fact that animal blood was to be applied to it in particular. 
So when the high priest would go back into the uh, Holy of Holies, he was to daub blood on the mercy seat itself. For this was the place where sins were forgiven because of atoning blood. And so this is the tour of the tabernacle. But the author is not content to leave things here. So in verses 6 through 10, he talks about how sacrifices were done or the regulations for worship in verse 1 are expanded in verses 6 through 10. And here we consider two things with him. First, we consider in verses 6 and 7 how these sacrifices worked. Now, as you look at verses 6 and 7, there's an easy way to distinguish between these two verses. Verse 6 The person performing the sacrifice is called the priest or priest. And in verse 7, it's the high priest. So the author starts with the regular or normal priest in verse 6. Look there in your Bible. It says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Here the normal priest had ritual duties that they had to do every single day. These duties included trimming their lamps, making sure they had oil and all the proper things ready for the lamps to remain alight, and making offerings every day. Every week they also had to replace the loaves, the bread of the presence, and all of this occurs, we find here, in the holy place, the place outside the Holy of Holies. Now these were their daily tasks. Perhaps this is a little bit like you might feel in your present experience with the virus. Every day you wake up and you find yourself doing the same thing over and over and over again. I have to admit there are a few times this past week, I, I, my, my normal ritual is to wake up, come to the office, set a to-do list and try to meet that to-do list, get as many things I can done, minister to as many people here as I can. But I found uh, this week I I kept losing track of my days for it felt like I was doing the same thing over and over and over again. Maybe that's your experience in this. But this is what the priests did every single day. They made sacrifices and they trimmed lamps. But then in verse 7 we see the annual work of a different priest, the high priest. Look there in verse 7. But into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Here once a year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on a special day called the the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, and he went in there to offer sacrifices. This annual ritual is described fully for us in Leviticus 16, so Uh, In your devotions this week, you could go back to Leviticus 16 and read all about it. There you would learn that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies at least two times on that day, maybe as many as up to four times. When he would go in, he would offer sacrifices for himself. He'd offer one bull for his own sins, and, and he would take in two goats for the sins of the people. One goat he slaughtered and its blood would be shed at different places there in the Holy of Holies or daubed across those places. Uh, And then the other goat would be a scapegoat that would be released into the wilderness. This is how things worked in the tabernacle. And the author just gives them two verses on this. They're fully aware of how things would occur in the tabernacle or temple. They knew what priests did. They knew what the high priest did. 
But he reviews that for them here. And after reminding them of this, the author describes two ways those old sacrifices were weak or limited. Okay, so thank you for following this far, but now let's look at the weaknesses of those mosaic sacrifices. First, the mosaic sacrifices could not provide direct access to God. Look look down at verse 8. It says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. I continue in the verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. Unless you and I were priests, we would be outside of both compartments of the tabernacle. You see, there would always be a veil, or actually two, that would keep us from God and that would keep God's presence from us. On verse 8, I think we can see this weakness very clearly. It could not provide us direct access to God. For in the middle of that verse, it says, the way into the holy places is not yet opened. You catch that? The way into the holy places is not yet opened. The only way to God under the old covenant was through a representative. The tabernacle did not provide full and free access or a way to God. See, the old covenant maintained a type of social distance between the worshiper and his God. So the author concludes here that the different sections of the tabernacle and the separating veils of the reader's day were a picture, a symbol of that distance that remained between them and God. But there was another significant weakness of the Mosaic Covenant. That's found in verses 9 and 10, middle of verse 9. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of redemption. Here, the Mosaic sacrifices also could not provide full internal cleansing. The Mosaic covenant was not able to make the conscience of the worshiper perfect. See, worshipers in the Old Covenant would never have confidence in approaching God. The worshipers never would feel prepared to worship God, for even in the moment of their worship, they might still sin. Ever tried to do something for the Lord before, some act for Him, and even in the moment of serving Him, you're, you're sinning, and your conscience is convicting you about that. Here, the gifts and sacrifices of the Old Covenant were not able to cleanse the inner being, the inner reality of Old Covenant believers. It only cleansed the externals. And the text says that all of this was true up until a specific time that you could read about the end of verse 10. And I was just really uh, drawn into looking at this time. Look at the end of verse 10. These things occurred. These regulations were imposed on the body until, he says, the time of reformation. The time of reformation. This expression, time of reformation, is only used here in the entire New Testament. I think it could be translated the time of a new order or the time of improvement. It speaks of the dawning of a different and a better time. Now, 
before you look down at your Bible, with your knowledge of the book of Hebrews and where we've come so far, what do you think is this time of reformation, this time of improvement? Well, the author does not tell us in verse 10. Doesn't tell us in verse 10, but take heart. In verse 11, I think it's really clear. We learn that the time of reformation is found in the first four words there is when Christ appeared. It's but when Christ appeared. Here the appearance of Jesus changes everything for the author of Hebrews. The time of reformation has arrived. That's what he's telling his readers here. A new sacrifice has been offered. And so that's what Hebrews 9, 11 through 10, 10 is going to consider. Now for the rest of our sermon, I only want to look at verses 11 through 14 with you and see the empowering sacrifice of Jesus in the new covenant. Look down in your Bibles with me at verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I think that the empowering nature of Jesus' sacrifice is found in three key concepts in verses 11 through 14. I think these things stick out structurally if you're to look at this, close, at this text very closely. If I one of the key concepts at the end of the first sentence, which is verses 11 and 12, it occurs right at the end of verse 12. And the other two key concepts occur at the end of verse 14, the second sentence, which is verses 13 and 14. So the first concept is that Jesus' sacrifice ransoms eternally. Our text starts out in verse 11 by saying that Christ, the high priest, has entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. One of the interesting things, though, about this passage is, well, what is this tabernacle? What is the author describing here? Despite what a lot of the commentators and uh, uh, people throughout the history of the interpretation of this text have said, I, I don't think that the tabernacle here is the church. I don't think that the tabernacle is the womb of the Virgin Mary or even the body of Christ. I don't think that the, that the tabernacle here is the crowd of saints in heaven, but I think it's a reference in verse 11 to the heavenly throne room of God. That is the greater and more perfect tent described in verse 11. So the heavenly sanctuary is one that's not made with hands. The tabernacle does not belong, that tabernacle does not belong to this world. And so what we see in this text is that Jesus entered the heavenly throne room, I think at his ascension, and he did not use animal blood when he entered. Instead, Jesus went by virtue of his own blood. Now, I think it's interesting to me that in verses 11 and 12, you see this progression of Jesus that's going into this heavenly throne room that I think that the author's still working with the picture of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 and what the high priest would do, starting in the outer court and making his way into the inner sanctuary. 
So that's the backdrop here. And so Christ's blood then is the basis by which he can go into heaven's tabernacle. Now at the end of verse 12, I think we learn something very important. He enters this heavenly tabernacle after he had secured redemption for us. The word redemption describes the release of a slave by the payment of a ransom. In our text, the idea of ransoming, I think, in verse 12 and 11 is, is dominating here. This ransom, this payment price, sets us free from our sins. And it does so eternally, the text says. That is, it lasts forever, and it will endure any end-time event or judgment, or critique, we're bought back eternally. As I was thinking about this first blessing of Jesus' sacrifice and him securing eternal redemption for us, I couldn't help but think that this text is a text that's more than just about Jesus. It's also about you if you know Christ as your Savior. I want you to imagine yourself for a while before you were converted, or if you don't know Christ, imagine yourself in your current condition. You're at your end. You're dead in your own trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 says. You're sitting, you're soaking on the garbage pile of your own sin. The other day, Carissa and I took a drive. Uh, We don't have a chance to do uh, much that's fun anymore other than the routine of every day and social distancing. We took a drive and it was so much fun until we drove past a garbage dump and our nice drive became temporarily unbearable. But imagine yourself on the garbage pile of your own sins and lusts. You've been rolling around in it for a while It's really bad. You stink thoroughly because of your depravity and you're damned to always remain in it. But then Jesus sees you in your unloving and sick state, your dead state, and he pays for you. He sets you free from your misery and sadness. You've been ransomed. But then the author goes further in verses 13 and 14, and he says that this sacrifice is empowering because it also cleanses. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify from the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? In verse 13, we're introduced to these strange practices I talked about in the introduction. Three rituals of the priests of the Old Covenant. You've already seen that one of them is about the daily sacrifices in the tabernacle, and another is describing the annual Day of Atonement. Over the ashes of a heifer, that that is a description of something that comes to us in Numbers chapter 19. And so this would be the prescription for those who would touch dead bodies under the Old Covenant. They would need the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on on their behalf. And so while, while we could look at all of these sacrifices in detail in verse 13, I don't think that's the author's point. The author is describing these things, and his readers are very familiar with them. 
And the author simply wants to say that these things, these sacrifices, were able to cleanse the flesh of the Old Testament Israelites. But then in verse 14, I think the primary point here is he exclaims that the blood of Christ was able to do much more. And so for our final moments here, I just want to take a a few of those to consider three aspects of the sacrifice all found in the middle of verse 14. First, his sacrifice, we learn, it's through the eternal spirit. So I studied that this week. I think that the eternal spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this word eternal, it's a strange adjective for the author of Hebrews to attach to the spirit. He is nowhere else described anywhere in the Bible as the eternal spirit. But I think that the author of Hebrews does it for two reasons primarily. One is really obvious, and that is it's because he is eternal. He's the eternal being. He's the, he, is the, he is God. He never has a beginning, never has an end. The spirit can be described as eternal. But I think the second reason he does this is because he wants to connect the work of the Holy Spirit in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to the eternal redemption he just talked about uh, in verse 12. And so Jesus' sacrifice was done in connection with or through the eternal spirit of God. And then he continues that it's Jesus' sacrifice that came without blemish to God. And here the imagery is of a lamb. We, We sang that song if you Watch the video about this perfect lamb that takes away our sins. This lamb is without blemish or spot or sin. And it's offered to God, this perfect lamb, Jesus, who's crushed for our sins. But then finally, we learn that the sacrifice is able to do something amazing. It's able to purify our consciences from dead works. So because Jesus' blood was offered through the eternal spirit of God, and because it was without any blemish or spot, it cleanses consciences from dead works. The word cleanse means to purge or purify. This is something Jesus does. He purifies or purges consciences. The word conscience is an internal witness that God gives to us, to all human beings, I think, that testifies about the nature of our innermost thoughts and of our actions, even our private actions. We learn in Romans, I think it is, that the conscience either accuses or excuses us. I want you to think about this conscience that God has given to you for just a short moment before we make application to Christ. Some of you who are listening to me today are defiled. You feel dirty right now because you blew it this week or this morning. You got so angry with your kids that you lost it and you yelled at them. You got so angry with your parents you slammed the door to get away from them. Or you blew it at work this week You fudged the records so that you could get some private benefit. Or your parents told you not to watch something, but you did. They told you not to close the door, you did. Or not to play a certain game, but that you did. And so your conscience is screaming at you now, unclean, 
unclean. However, verse 14 says that if you come to Jesus in your sin, if you believe in him and repent of your sins, he will cleanse you from the stinking garbage pile of your own sin and the accusations that then come from your guilty conscience. Listen, men and women, no modern invention or medical treatment or ointment could touch a guilty conscience. Only Christ could do that. Our sins had damned and dirtied us, but Christ cleanses. That's what he does in his sacrifice. And so we were ugly and filthy in our own sins, but we've been ransomed and cleansed. Yet there's one more thing. Although verses 11 and 12 and verses 13 and 14, those two sentences, appear to repeat a lot of things, there is some progression in the text. And I think the progression can be found in the very five, in the five last words of verse 14. Look at the end of verse 14. It says, to serve the living God. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus ransoms and cleanses in order to enable us. Because we've been redeemed and our conscience is clean, we can now experience the end or the purpose of our redemption. Christ has produced an even deeper effect than freeing us, than cleansing us, he has fit us to be extravagant worshipers of Jesus Christ. Now the word serve at the end of this text is a very special word. This word is often used in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament of the service that the priest performed. A religious service. Yet in this text, it's not used in this passage of priests or of even the high priest. In this passage, interestingly, it's not even used of Jesus, but it is used of us. We have been cleansed, liberated from our past sins, so that we can worship the living God. Men and women, if you know Jesus as your Savior, we have been fitted to serve God as spiritual priests ourselves. The sacrifices of Moses distanced believers and dealt with externals. The sacrifice of Jesus, however, ransoms and cleanses to open up the way to God. We've been ransomed, cleansed, so that we can worship God in all of life. So Colonial Baptist Church, Will you do that this week? The good news for you is that you don't have to come to a building to do that. You can worship the living God right now, right where you are. You can worship God even if others in your family or friends just aren't interested in singing and praising his name. They're not interested in listening to the word. I would say this. I'd say take your eyes off of other people and put them smack dab on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Sing. Shout for joy. 
worship him through the way you listen and receive the word. He is worthy. And you can also serve Jesus this week right in your own neighborhood by reaching your neighbors and telling them that Jesus is special. Jesus and his sacrifice can cleanse their conscience, can give them. I, I, I'm convinced that in our culture and world today, people are looking to find a cleared conscience. You can tell them Jesus cleanses consciences and he frees sinners. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask God to help us do that right now where we are and where we live. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that we might rejoice in the fact that Jesus has, has ransomed us. The picture of our own sins and our own depravity is ugly. I've used the illustration of a garbage pile, and I don't think that even fully captures the ugliness of sin, of, of my sin, of our sin, from your perspective. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were damned, and you, through Jesus, secured eternal redemption for us. You bought us back, and you didn't stop there, but you cleansed our consciences from dead works so that we might serve you. Lord, I pray for our church family this week that they might serve you in their own cul-de-sac, in their own apartment building, in their own neighborhood. I pray that they would gladly perform the work of a spiritual representative of God, one who has full access to him by going to others and telling them what Jesus does. He cleanses consciences and he frees sinners. And might we rejoice together in hearing of people who are converted to the faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.